we enter the new year, here are a few questions. I started to say a question, but I always turned it into multiple questions. Do you ever have a desire to do the right thing? Uh, do you want to live a meaningful life? Maybe you might go so far as to say, I want to do whatever God wants me to do. Whatever that is, that would be the right thing. I want to do it. Have you ever thought this? If God would just speak directly to me, if God would just tell me exactly what he wants me to do, I would do it, no questions asked. If God would just write it on the wall up there, uh, I would do it, whatever he said. By the way, that probably reminds you if you, you know, read the book of Daniel and scripture about how that happened one time. You remember that story in the Old Testament? Uh, it actually happened mid-October, 539 B.C. in the kingdom, ancient kingdom of Babylon. The Babylonian king Belshazzar was drunk and having a drunken party uh, as the upstart Persians were making its way across the country, but he wasn't worried because his, his fortress city was impregnable and defensible. But then here's when it happened. This is, you've, heard, you've heard that phrase, the handwriting on the wall. This is where it came from. Daniel chapter five, verse five. Suddenly, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall near the lampstand in the royal palace. The king watched as it wrote. Can you imagine how you would feel if you say, I wish God would just write it on the wall and then all of a sudden a hand appeared over here? Verse six, here's what, he, you would do what he did. His face turned pale and he was so frightened, his legs became weak and his knees began knocking against each other. And eventually, you know, nobody could figure out what did it say? So we have that problem from God sometimes. There's, we got these words, but what does it mean? What does it say? And nobody could figure it out until Daniel came on the scene. And, and, and the king didn't want to hear it because Daniel says what it says, king, is that you have been weighed in the balances and you didn't make it. Your, your life and your kingdom are about to end. And that night, Daniel, I mean, that night, Belshazzar lost his life and the Persians overran his kingdom. Maybe I don't want to see the hand on the wall, right? Maybe I just want to do something else. But God, if you would just, just tell me, tell me who to marry. If you just tell me what job you want me to pursue. If you just tell me whether to buy this house or not, whether to buy this car or not, whether to move, whether to have children. Uh, if you would just tell me, God, exactly what you want me to do. Of course, by the way, God has told us some things that he wants us to do, hasn't he? He's written some stuff down that he wants us to do. Uh, for instance, Jesus said, believe. He wants you to believe. In John chapter 6, verse 28, they asked Jesus, what, was, what, what must we do to do the works that God requires? And he answered in verse 29, the work of God is this, to believe in the one who has sent me. When Paul the apostle was asked by the, 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 uh, uh, the jail keeper in the city of Philippi, what do we have to be, do to be saved? That is to go to heaven. He said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you'll be saved, your whole house to do the same thing. Jesus said, be baptized, give, pray, love your enemies, tell the truth, don't hoard wealth. Jesus said in Matthew 6, 25, therefore I tell you, do not worry. So you, you would do it right. If it was written down, you would do exactly what God told you to do. I can't do this myself. Do not worry about your life, what you'll eat or drink, or about your body, what you'll wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? It's written down right there for us, you know, direct quotation. This is what God wants us to do. And then in John 13, Jesus said this, a new command I give you, love one another. 
As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. Sounds pretty easy until it isn't, right? There are many things that you don't need to even pray about because they are written down. They are very specific. There are some right things and there are some obviously wrong things. Don't do those wrong things. They hurt you. Do the right things. They are good for you. But, but there are many personal decisions where the right decision is not so clear cut. And that's what our new series is about. It's about those things that, you know, there's some stuff that we can act like we don't know, but it's right there written down for us. But there are some things that are not so clear cut. And so uh, for this month and into next month, we're reading together this book by John Ortberg called All the Places to Go. How will you know? How do you know uh, what to do? God has placed before you an open door. What will you do? We're all out of the books, by the way. So I got no more books to say, take one, but it's easy enough to get a hold uh, of one. We'll also be watching a video along this line each week and discussing certain aspects of the book in our house groups. Christian's got a group that meets on Sunday. I got a group that meets on Tuesday. Todd and James have a group that meets on Wednesday. Uh, get involved in that, just at least for this series that we're doing. And if none of those times work for you and you'd, you'd like to host a group or you'd say, I, I just wish we could do something else so I could be in on this, let James know or let me know. We'll see if we can work something out. Now, I think you're probably familiar with this symbolic use of the term open door. It speaks of opportunity, right? I mean, uh, doors mean a lot of things, but open door gives you the idea of an opportunity. Life is filled with opportunities, with doors that open and doors that close. And the decisions that we make about walking through those doors determines who we become. Uh, the, the doors you walk through today determine who you're gonna be next year and who are you gonna be five years uh, from now. The doors that God opens for us are opportunities to walk with him instead of walking alone, to make a difference in the lives of the people around us instead of making life about ourselves and to prepare for eternity. And those are the things that give life meaning. Uh, help us do things like raise godly, uh, responsible children and the things that are most important to us. Uh, John Ortberg puts it like this on page 14 of the book. He says this, an open door is an opportunity provided by God to act with God and for God. And so today's subject is opened doors, not just open doors, but opened doors. And we're going to talk about why that's truth. The central passage for this study, and it comes up over and over through the book, is in the book of the Revelation, uh, 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 the last book of the Bible, if you were in on the, the thing that we did in September called The End, you know that uh, in the book of Revelation is the revelation of Jesus Christ through the Apostle John, two seven churches, and chapters two and three are actually letters to these seven churches, uh, and, and one of these letters is to the church at, uh, at Philadelphia, and there's a map, oh, we like it. we've got two maps today, by the way. And the, blue, the yellow arrow points to Philadelphia. That's uh, modern-day Turkey. And there's the, the Greek peninsula hanging down. And that'd be Israel way over to the right and Syria. But Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Smyrna, Ephesus, Laodicea, the city of Philadelphia. The word Philadelphia meaning brotherly love. And in general, these letters to the seven churches address the problems inherent in churches throughout the history uh, of, uh, of churches 
their incisive, their comprehensive revelation of how Christ evaluates us as a church. So it's pretty important. And here is part of what he said to the church at Philadelphia. Revelation chapter three, verse seven. To the angel, that the word angel just means messenger. Could be talking to the pastor. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write this. This is the message to them and it's for all of us. These are the words of him who is holy and true and holds the key of David. Now, without getting into it, these phrases obviously talk about Jesus himself. What he opens, no one can shut. And what he shuts, no one can open. That's what we're particularly interested in today is what does God open and what does God close? And then verse eight, he says to the church, Jesus says to this church, I know your deeds. He he knows all about us. I, I know everything about you. And he says, I have placed before you an open door and no one can shut, that no one can shut. I know you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. You notice a few things in that verse. First of all, Jesus doesn't say what the open door is. Now, they may have known, and we just don't know. Or maybe like us, sometimes we're wondering, what is the open door? What door is it that God wants me to go through? I got, maybe I got three doors. And how do I choose the right door, the right thing uh, to do? We'll be talking about that some as we go through the series. And that word open right there, I have placed before you an open door. A little English lesson, you're, I hope you're familiar with this. Open is an adjective, right? It's describing the door. It's an open door. Except in the Greek language, it's not a, an adjective, it's a verb called a participle. You know, a participle is one of those I-N-G words like playing, singing, running, those kinds of things. And this happens to be a perfect passive participle. And so you can translate it like this. I, I place before you a door having been opened. I place before you a door that I have personally opened. So this is not just an open door. This is not just a door that that somebody forgot to lock. This is not just an accidental door. This is a door that God has specifically opened for you to walk through. Now what is true is that uh, of this door open for the church in Philadelphia is that no one can shut. I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. No one could keep the church at Philadelphia from going through the door that God had opened for them. They didn't have to go through if they didn't want to, but no one could stop them. No power on earth could keep them from going through that door if they chose to do it. No government on earth could keep them from going through the door. No financial uh, 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 shortage could keep them from going through that door. Nothing could stop them. Jesus said, I've opened a door for you and nobody can shut this door. Now, what's equally true about this group and this door is uh, I know that you have little strength. I know that that you're a small group. I know you don't have a lot of money. I know you don't have a lot of power. I know you don't have a lot of influence. God's open door has nothing to do with those things. It has nothing to do with how big you are, how small you are, how influential you are, how important you are, how much money you have, how little money you have. God's God's open doors has nothing to do with that. It's about him. He says, walk through the door and I am with you. When you walk through the door and God is with you, that's the best, that's as good as it gets on the planet. That's what God says about the open door. Walk through the door 
and I'm with you. And I think one of the reasons he opened the door for these people, by the way, he says, you have kept my word and you have not denied my name. Now, uh, one of the big examples that we'll read about through the book that we're reading is the example of Abraham. So I'd like to take a look at that example of Abraham and the door that God opened for him. You've probably heard of Abraham, Abraham before. His mom and daddy gave him the name Abram. God changed his name later. It was based on the doors that he walked through by faith. Abram was born in one of the wealthiest cities of his day to what seems to be an in, a very influential family. Let's look at that next map that comes up. We'll just leave it up for a while. See the yellow arrow here? That's the Near East. That would be Israel along the left and Syria up there around Haran and, and uh, uh, Turkey north of them. And, 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 and along those two rivers, the Euphrates River and the Tigris River, that would be Iraq, the modern nation of Iraq. And so uh, uh, Abram was born way down there in the city of Ur, which at that time was the, the center of the great Sumerian civilization. Uh, eventually, that city became known as Ur of the Chaldees a little bit later on. And you can see the, the journey that he took. See the arrow? Uh, they, they were headed eventually over to where the red arrow is, over to what is Canaan or modern-day Israel. But they went up north to Haran and then made their way back down again uh, because that's the trade route. You didn't just cut across completely uh, open territory. You followed the trade route. So they were following the trade route. And here is what scripture says about that. It, starting in Genesis chapter 11, verse 27. This is the account of Terah's family line. Terah became the father of Abram, Nahor, and Haran. So there's three sons. And Haran became the father of Lot, and Lot is mentioned because Haran dies early, and Lot goes with Abram. So we have a family of well-to-do pagans, not, not believers in the one God, well-to-do pagans living in a wealthy, powerful pagan city. The call of Abram at, that's recorded in chapter 12 that we're going to read in a minute seems to have first given, been given when they were living in this city called Ur. Now, by the way, it's impossible to know if you're reading this and studying this exactly how Abram's dad, Terah, and the rest of the family were first involved. I could give you some speculations, but all we know is they didn't carry, they left together, but they didn't carry through together. Whatever the case was, the whole family left Ur together, and they went north to this city called Haran, and they stopped there. Genesis 11:31 says this, Terah took his son Abram, his grandson Lot, a son of Haran, his daughter-in-law Sarai, the wife of his son Abram, and together they set out for, from Ur of the Chaldeans to go to Canaan, which is over here. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. They, that's interesting. They settled there. It means they sat down there. It means they established a home there means they got comfortable there. That's what happens to us a lot of times, isn't it? We get started in life, we're enthused, we know what we should do, and we go part of the way, and we go, whew, I think I've done enough. Uh, I gotta start thinking about myself and my family here. Uh, I, I'm too old for this. I'm too young for this. I'm running out of money. What was I thinking anyway when I got started with this? 
Verse 32 says, Terah lived 205 years and he died in Haran. Then it's recorded that God comes to Abram while he's in Haran, settled down, sitting down with his family. They got there and they went, this is enough. Have you ever done that? I've done it a few times in my life. And then in Genesis chapter 12, verse 1, the Lord said to Abram, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. Go from your country. Uh, King James and New King James Version says, get out. I like that. Get out. Time to leave. Uh, A man in the ancient world was identified as a member of his father's household. And when the head of the household died, and Abram seems to be the uh, older son, he's the first mentioned uh, anyway, when the head of the household died, his heir assumed the title uh, of, of, uh, 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 over the family and the responsibilities over the family. And, and his, his position identified him with the ancestral lands and property. And so by leaving your father's household behind, you're giving up your inheritance. You're giving up the property that could have been yours. You take with you only what you have, only what you carry. And that's what Abram did. God said, leave, and he left. Abram was a middle-aged, prosperous, settled, thoroughly pagan man when God said, go, and he went. Now, God made some big promises to Abram, but when he said go, he didn't tell him exactly where he was going. He said, I'll show you that after you get started. You walk through a door, you don't always know where you're going to end up. All you know is God says, here's step number one. Start here. And by the way, Abram had no idea that the promises that were made to him weren't going to be fulfilled in his lifetime. I mean, he only, he just, he just had, well, two sons, but only one son of the promise. By the time he died, there was no great nations or anything of that nature as was eventually promised. So going through an open door takes us from someplace to someplace else. And the greatest thing about going through the door is that God is there with you when you go through. Verse 2. God says to Abram, I will make you into a great nation. Yeah, you're only going to have one kid by the time you die, but I'm going to make you into a great nation. And I will bless you, and I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. So you're going to be a great nation, and your name's going to be great. And notice the connection. I'm going to bless you, and you will be a blessing. We talk about this a lot around here. God blesses us so we can bless other people. God doesn't give us what he gives us. Just because we're better than somebody else or we deserve to have luxury more than somebody else. Enjoy and appreciate what God gives you, but realize that God blesses us so that we can bless others. Verse three, I will bless those who bless you. And whoever curses you, I will curse. And then that's such an important statement. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Every people group will be blessed through you. By the way, this isn't even about you. (laughs) This is so that I can bless all the people groups of the world. And that ultimate blessings to all the peoples on earth through Abram refers to Jesus Christ, descendant of Abraham, the savior of the entire world. Verse four, so what did Abram do? So Abram went. He said, okay, I'm going. So Abram went as the Lord had told him and Lot went with him, his nephew, And Abram was 75 years old when he set out from Haran. 
75. Abraham went. That's what faith does. Faith says, okay, I don't understand everything here. and I'm not quite sure what's going to happen. But God, I, I, I know you. And I know you're not going to let me down. And even though things might always go the way I, I believe they should go, I'll go. Now, by the way, 75 years old may not have been as old as 75 is today, but Abram was no young man. He was old enough to say, why don't you let Lot do it? You know, he's a young guy. Why don't you let one of these young guys do it? No, there's no too old, there's no too young, there's no too fat or too skinny or too big or too small or anything when God opens the door for you to walk through. All the places you go, how will you know? God has placed before you an open door. Well, what are you going to do? Will you make it all about you and your comfort and the way you feel about things? That's, that's very short-sighted. It, it seems like, yeah, I'm, I'm making a good light for myself, but it brings only emptiness. When you make it all about you, uh, when you get into it, you realize I have nothing. Remember this, and this is something that will come up over and over as we go through this study, God is more interested in who you are and who you become than he is interested in what you accomplish and what you accumulate. We look around and we see people based on their accomplishments, their degrees, the businesses that they've built up, the houses that they've built. Uh, we look around the money they've accumulated, but God looks and sees the person. And what kind of a person is this? Therefore, God wants you to trust him, to follow him, even when you don't know exactly where you're going, even when things are not totally clear. So I, I don't know, what's the second step, God? What's the third step, God? What's the tenth step, God? Where am I going to be in five years or ten years, God? And God just says, follow me. Maybe it's best you don't know, because you might not be able to take it. You should pray, and you should plan, and you should seek counsel, and you should prepare as much as you can before you walk through an open door, but eventually you just got to go through. You just got to do it. You can't think about it and pray about it all your life. You got to walk through the door. I like this, this verse in Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes chapter 11, verse 4 New International Version translates it the way most versions do. Whoever watches the wind will not plant. Whoever looks at the clouds will not reap. The New Living Translation is not a translation. It's a, a paraphrasing, an interpretation, but I think it gets it right here. The, the Living Bible, excuse me, not the New Living, but the Living Bible says, if you wait for perfect conditions, you'll never get anything done. You'll never do anything. You'll never take that job start that business, have that child, whatever. If you wait for perfect conditions, you'll never get anything done. Sometimes there comes a point you just do it. Uh, when you follow God, it's an act of faith. Let me just give you a, a little bit. <clears throat> Sometimes I impose my personal experiences and testimonies on you, but just let me close with a couple thoughts here. I came to faith in Christ when I was just a young, young kid. Uh, and from an early age, after I came to Christ, I had this vague idea that, you know, I think I might be a preacher someday. I think I might be a pastor because my dad was. But I was just a kid, and, you know, I was desperately, desperately shy. You could hold a gun on me, and I wouldn't say anything to you. 
And I went all, I went all the way through school, graduated from high school, and, and because of an attentive, caring high school counselor who put an application form in front of me and put a pencil in my hand and forced me to fill it out, I got an academic scholarship to the University of Miami, and I went over there and got started, and I still had this idea in my mind, you know, I might be a pastor someday, but what can an 18-year-old do, you know? I don't even know how, hardly how to get around town. I had excelled in math and science in high school. And I was comfortable in that, so I declared as a math major and a physics minor the most miserable academic year of my entire life, my first year as a math major uh, uh, you know, and, and a physics minor at the University of Miami. Uh, I, and when I say the most miserable, I mean I started in the first grade at six years of age, and until I was 40, I was either teaching some college somewhere or taking a class somewhere. So I say, if I say that's the most miserable year, it was really, really bad. And so I went to my pastor, who happened to be my dad. By the way, he never put any pressure on me to be a pastor or to go into ministry. All he wanted me to do was the right thing. Never put any pressure of any kind. And I told him all the reasons I felt like I probably could never be a pastor. And he reminded me that it wasn't all about me, that I wasn't the standard of anything. It was all about Jesus and only he is the standard. So I told God that I'd do what he wanted me to do and I announced to the church that I was planning to become a pastor. And I changed my major uh, to history and my minor to religion. I stayed at the University of Miami and I had this great plan in my mind how it was gonna work out. I was gonna graduate from college and I was gonna go to seminary. And after I graduated from seminary, I was going to come back and work in my dad's church. And he'd still be the big guy carrying the load, making all the decisions. And I could work with him, and it seemed like the greatest thing in all the world. Now, if you've heard me give my testimony before, you know that six weeks before I graduated from college, dad passed away. And within a week, all of a sudden, I was the guy, you know, the interim pastor before I ever started seminary. And from there, I just did what I needed to do. I tried to follow the Lord wherever he guided because I didn't know what else to do and go through whatever door he put there. And much of my life has not been what I thought it would be. 30 years ago, I was in central Florida pastoring a church where I'd been for 11 years, teaching a couple of classes at Hillsborough Community College. I enjoyed both of them. People loved us. We loved them. Everything was going great, but... There was something going on inside of me, an unrest that was going on, an unsettling feeling that was going on in me. I can't say for sure that it was God, but I went to, to God and I said, Lord, whatever you want me to do, I, I, I'm willing to do that. If you want, whatever you want me to do. And I got a phone call one night from this guy named Perry Morton. Perry Morton was the number one deacon in this church at that time 30 years ago. And in his gruff kind of way, would you like to come up and candidate to be pastor of our church? And I said, you know what? I think I will. And so I won't go through all the steps and that kind of thing, but I came up here and I prayed and I met and I talked and I went home. And the church said, we want you to be our pastor. And I came up here and I prayed some more and I talked some more and I still wasn't sure what God wanted me to do. What should I do? I've heard people talk about God gave me a peace about this, and I knew exactly what I was going to do. Hey, a bunch of times I don't get a peace about anything. 
not have a peace about that. But God had opened this door. I've been praying about it, and God opened this door. And so Gene and I decided we would step through the open door. And here we are. And so my question for you is this, as we close. What door has God opened for you? Is there a door, and you prayed, and you prayed, and you thought, and you thought about it, and there's this door, and you just don't know what to do, and I, you know, <clears throat> I'm not telling you that every door is the right door, but I am telling you that most of the time, God just wants you to agonize with him a little bit. He wants you to spend some time with him. He wants you to be his friend. He wants you to talk to him and talk to him and talk to him. And, and he says to you, door number one, door number two, door number three, uh, it, you know, after you know what the principles of, of my will are, I, I'll be with you. Walk through, I'll be with you. I'm going to take care of you. The bad thing about not walking through the door is you leave God on the other side, right? So has God, or what, God, what door has God opened for you? Let's pray. Uh, Father, it's a scary thing to think about leaving your people and your country and your heritage and your inheritance behind, so to speak. But I know that what you want is for us to trust you. What you want is, for, is to be our friend. What you want is for us to talk with you and spend time with you because you've promised that you're always going to be with us. Please, please, Father, give us wisdom to know. In Jesus' name, amen.